I am adamant, and I always have been, like, when, when I got out of prison, I always promised myself money would never be my God ever again. Like, I would never make decisions in my life based around money. This week, we've got the incredible John McAvoy. Steve, what do you reckon? It's just such a, it's the most remarkable story of, you know, kind of from one end of the spectrum to the other. And just like John McAvoy, for those, do you want to give a little spiel about just a bit? Bank robber, ex-bank robber that ended up in maximum security prisons. He was in the, he was serving two life sentences by a chance set of circumstances, ended up getting on a rowing machine and started rowing because it was the only way he could get out of his cells. He ended up rowing, setting world records, setting British records and starts this journey of transformation and he gets out and now he's a Nike-sponsored triathlete, the only one in the world. But but I think the bit that takes this a bit further, Dave, sorry to interrupt, is that John goes from, you know, being wanting to be extremely wealthy, wanting to be a professional triathlete to now he wants to really give back and serve society and focus on kind of looking at the prison system and how they can get see sport as a, a kind of means to transform. Yeah, I, I just found him such a light. I found he's like, he really is like, his eyes are so bright and vibrant and you can see he's talking from a place where I'm going, geez, I want a bit of that. Like he's really... Yeah, yeah. A- John invited us to go hang out uh, in Alpe d'Huez and I'll totally take him up. In a post-COVID for- world. But uh, yeah, what a, what an incredible story. I think you'll really, really enjoy this podcast. And, and what a gentleman. I think that was that was the other bit that really... Yeah, and, and if you listen to it actually, you'll notice John recently has just gone plant-based. So uh, yeah. yeah, he's a professional triathlete that's plant-based. So yeah. Really incredible story. Hope you enjoy it. Hit us up on social. Let us know what you think of it when you listen to it. And, and check John out. He's phenomenal. Yeah, enjoy. This one's special. I'll show you the view. I'll see if I can. Wow. I can't. I was going to try to set the camera up, but I didn't want to. It was too much light. Can wow. you see that? Oh, my yes. God. John, that looks incredible. So, so there's, there's quite a big Irish community up here, and they've all pleaded with me to invite you up when the lockdown ends and like to come and stay up here for a week or two weeks. Oh, I'd love to. I'm, I'm telling you now, I know like you guys love nature. I, on honest to God, I have never experienced beauty like this. This place is just on another scale of just stunningness. Like my, wow. my friend come here last summer and she'd been to Everest K2 She's travelled all around the world and she was literally blown away by it's the variety of stuff in in a relatively like small footprint. So like within 40 kilometers here, you've got like some of the highest mountains in the Alps. You've got you you've got hikes, you've got cycles, you've got mountain swims, you got you can swim down in the valley. But please, like honestly, I'm, I'm, when when this madness ends, you have to come out here. Okay, what's it what's it called? Is it Chamonix or is no, it? No, so I'm I'm in a place called Alpe d'Huez. Okay. Oh yeah, is, I've heard of it for skiing. Yeah. It's a ski. Yeah, place. that's yeah, it mate. Do you know what, mate? It undersells itself massively. Like they just like they obviously traditional French community that ski seasons the season and they don't really harness the like the beauty and scour this place in the summer and the autumn and the spring. Like they just, they only see it as a ski resort. They don't see like wow. what else it has to offer. Like they don't realize a lot of the French people here that like Alpe d'Huez is probably the most famous cycle climb in the world. Like Lance Armstrong called it the mythical climb and they called it the Hollywood climb in the Tour de France because it's wow. just so iconic and the way the mountain is. And um, it's got loads of switchbacks going up. So it's a 13K climb from bottom to top. We're 8% gradient. 
but you and guys have to come out. Like just, is, is that what you're doing? You're just pegging it up and down the hill. And I saw your rowing right. setup. Your rowing setup. Your rowing yeah. gym looks hilarious. That's like, yeah. that's the <laughs> rowing gym of dreams. Oh, mate, it's just, man, it's just like, I don't, we can talk about it, but just like, I am so fortunate and blessed that sport come into my life. Like, because it, how it sort of opened up this place to me, like, it's just, oh, like, it, it literally took me from that dark hole being in prison to like, literally on the top of a mountain. And that, that sort of extreme of like having no freedom to suddenly probably being the freest I've ever been as a human being on the earth. It's just incredible. And it's all, it's all through sport. And even looking at you now, like you're lit, like your eyes are like, you're just pulsating <laughs> yeah. life. Like I just yes. look at you and like, wow, there's a vibrant man. And, and do you know what happened as well, mate? Like coming up here as well, like I've eaten meat my whole life. Like since I was a kid, like I, my, my granddad Jack, like Irish, boiled bacon and potatoes as kids. Like my mum, like that was that was our Sunday dinner. And, I, and I've eaten meat throughout my whole life. And then in the summer, man, I was like, I've never been around animals ever in my whole life, like dogs and cats, but like I've never been in nature. And I was going up every night and I, I used to go I'd buy like packs of carrots and go up and feed the horses at the stables on the top of the mountain. And I just remember one night, man, these two horses like walked towards me and I'm feeding them and I'm just looking at them and I'm like, I'm a fucking hypocrite. Like I've got this connection with these animals and I'm looking at all these cows and sheep like, like they're, they're, they're going to get killed. Like they're, they're in the mountains, but they're, they're in electric fences. And it reminded me of prison. And I just felt like a hypocrite. And then I just stopped eating meat from June, the end of June. Wow. That, yeah. No, I didn't eat meat a... since. And then and how are you no, feeling? Have you noticed mate, any? Like, I, I've got to be honest. Do you know when you see these memes over the years where people said about when people turn vegan and they say, turn, turn around and say they feel like shit and they're going to pass out? I genuinely, like, I know I'm in the mountains, so... You could factor the fact that I'm in a very nice environment in nature and I feel mentally very good. But physically, like I'm in the best shape I've ever been in. Like my power on the bike's not diminished. My swimming's not diminished. And like my running has just gone through the roof. Like I've, I feel like I've gone on another level and I've not felt, I don't feel fatigued from tra after training. I, 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 I've not felt how people said I would feel through not eating meat. And, and I, me personally, I know we're all different. I know our bodies are different, but. Like I'm burning out on average about three to 5,000 calories a day. And I'm not sure, I don't feel like shit when I'm getting up the next morning. And in fact, I would probably say I'm getting up the next morning. I feel more um, revitalized. I don't feel as sluggish, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally yeah. Wow. Smashing yeah, that's the mate. So, so are you learning to cook now? Are you like... Mate, I, yeah, I am. I'm sure, mate, I was very bad before. Like I was one of these sort of people that um, I would rely on other people to cook food for me. I was like a deliveroo um like addicts and that was delivery 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 especially when i lived in london um and obviously being in the mountains in france the france yeah, quite they, they, they don't deliveroo. quite get veganism they don't even know what veggie like no. if you went in and said can i have a vegan salad they'd come and give you a tuna salad like they don't quite get <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> so I, I i am trying to learn mate i am trying to learn <laughs> i'll post you a couple of cookbooks i'll, I'll oh, message mate, afterwards you. and get your address yeah, yeah, I'll, post, yeah. I'll post you a few books thank you great. mate I'm really honored to have you here, John. Thanks so much for doing this. And I think one thing I was just thinking of there, like, has anyone ever approached you? Like, has anyone bought the rights to your story to make a Hollywood movie of it? Because it's <laughs> like, it is the ultimate, like your story is the ultimate Hollywood, like Walt Disney kind of movie. Like it really is. Do you know, do you know what, mate? I've got to be honest with you. Over the last couple of years, like I've had and a litany of different opportunities to turn the book into a film. Like, and, I'm, and even to the degree where like contracts have been put in front of me. 
And in the regards of being lucrative, some of them have been very financially lucrative, but like I am adamant and I always have been like, when, when I got out of prison, I always promised myself money would never be my God ever again. Like I would never make decisions in my life based around money. And when these financial, like when these contracts were put in front of me, it's always been very important to me to have a creative control over the process because when I was a little boy and I watched that film with my uncle in it called Fool's mm -hmm. Gold, that film was like, it glamorized crime. It made it very exciting. And obviously I know I had a different connection to that film because it was my uncle and all my cousins and stuff were played in it. But it was like a real catalyst for me becoming a criminal. So I understand how if you glorify the criminality to people, how some people, even though there might be a positive message at the end, they can get sucked in. And the problem yeah. is with a lot of these opportunities that have been put in front of me, it's like someone once said to me, what makes for a true story and what makes for facts are two different things. And that's yeah. why a lot of films always say they're based on a true story and it isn't yeah, yeah. a true story. And I'm just very mindful, like how that film could be made. And I, if, if it was made, I would want it made in a way where people would come out of cinema and it would make people feel like I can do anything with my life. I wouldn't want it to be like a Guy Ritchie film where it was like shoot em ups and, yeah. and then there was like prison riots and then it, all, all that. So I, want it to, I would want it to be a positive. And what I've noticed when, when you start dealing with producers and directors, it kind of starts getting watered down into their vision of what that story, because you could tell my story a thousand different ways, depending on who yeah. got the rights to tell it. Yeah. Um, it was a bit disappointing because before COVID, Channel More Four Films and a, a director called Jan Demange that made, the, uh, made a TV program called Top Boy. He, he, he it, was a, it was a British, like, gritty crime um, docu-series, but it was about young people in London. It, it, you should watch it if you haven't. It's called Top Boy. And it was cool. about like gang violence in London, but it was very storytelling, very much more character, character driven and not justifying why they did what they did. But it kind of explained to the viewer how like young black men get involved in gangs in London and why the decisions that they choose to make. So it, it's quite informative and it didn't sort of glamorize crime. He made it very realistic. So the fact that like majority of them ended up dead or they ended up in prison or they just wasted their lives. Um, and he, he was potentially going to do it. And then Channel 4 looked like they were going to come in with an offer. And then COVID happened and it all kind of... Um, uh, uh, Channel well, 4 maybe, maybe something, maybe something like, like your life in general, like maybe the, something will wash through that was better, you know, to give opportunity. Yeah, and, and I'm a, I, think, I think eventually, mate, it, the right person will come with the right sort of... With the right intentions. And I, and I do think that will happen. As I said, like, I just tend to find with the opportunities that come in from America, they've always just been way too, like... The people that yeah, made CSI okay. Miami and stuff, and it's just, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, yeah. They're, they're like, gonna be I, the I, biggest gangster, yeah, man. I like, I got approached the other day. I got a, a, a treatment sent through from a guy that makes TV documentaries in America for Netflix, and he made something called Fear City, and it was about the New York Mafia. And when he sent the treatment, man, it was like everything I would not want. <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was it. It was like that whole narrative of like organized crime, and 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 I I wasn't prepared. Like, I don't mind talking about it and the reasons why how it affected my life and shaped my life, but I don't want my life to be defined and I don't want to glorify that yeah. sort of world to people. 
That's that's very. I good think that's awareness. really responsible of you because, like, it's like say listening to your story, it's the most phenomenal story. And even I was telling my dad about it yesterday, and I was saying, "Oh yeah, bank robber and all this," and it it kind of can almost glamorize and can crime. I, yeah. Can I? Whereas I think the real part of your story is the transformation, the fact it's that kind of hero's journey. It's like, oh my God, look who you are now. And 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 for anyone, because anyone who's just tuned in now, like your story is the most incredible thing. So can you, for people that don't know you or don't know what you've come through, could you give a quick highlight of just, you know, I've listened to it a number of times and it's like, that's why I, I couldn't help but ask the question, like, how come no one's made a movie of this? Because it's like, it's just... Every time I've heard you speak it, like the hairs stand up in the back of my neck. So could you give us a kind of a, a highlights for someone who, who, who hasn't yeah, so, heard yeah, your story? To, to sort of give you a brief overview and like condense it into a couple of minutes. Um, like my life has been sort of unusual in the regard of even before I was born, my, my, my life coming into this world was quite in a unique situation in regards of my dad was 38 years old. My mum's eight months pregnant with me. They got out of bed one night. They've just, they've been married a year. My dad just dies of a heart attack in bed next to my mum at 38 years old. My mum's eight months pregnant than me. Um, my dad didn't know he had a bad heart. <laughs> he was a workaholic, um, legitimate businessman, but just workaholic. And he passes away. I get born into the world. Um, I obviously didn't have a father figure in my life as a young man growing up. Um, but when I was little, there was a couple of very pivotal moments in my life as a child. So one, I was one of the most loved children you can imagine. Like um, I had my mum, my sister, my mum is from a big Irish family. She's got seven sisters, one brother. I'm, I'm sort of this doted on little boy by all these women growing up as a kid. I had an amazing childhood, amazing childhood. Like I've not, I've not got one negative experience as a child. Christmas would come and I just remember like presents under the tree. And my mum always used to say to me, when I go back to school, I couldn't tell other kids what I got for Christmas. They say mum and dad didn't have money to buy them stuff and it make other people feel bad. So I had this really loving childhood. Um, but when I started going to primary school, like children being children used to tease me because my dad never picked me up from school. Now, I didn't think it was not normal not to have a dad. So when I went home, I asked my mum where my dad was. And mum explained to me, she simplified it because I was quite young at this point. I was like five or six years old. But my mum explained to me that my dad had died before I was born and he'd gone to heaven. And again, she simp simplified it for a child. And, and obviously, as a little boy, I was very inquisitive as a kid. So I'm asking my mum, what does that mean? Where's he gone? Why is he not coming back? So my mum explained to me what death was. She kind of just simplified it again. But from a very young age, I had this, this, this sort of awareness that I wasn't going to live forever from a very young age. Now, how this manifested itself was I started developing this interest in history as a really young boy. And my mum used to take me to like London Dungeons and the HMS Belfast. And I remember Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And, and I, I, I used to love history as a kid. And my mum used to buy me these magazines out of the newsagents and they were called Discovery Booklets. And every month was a different stage of history. And these, these magazines were for children. And you'd build the puzzles up and they would like be colouring books and stuff in the side. And you you'd just learn basic history. And I can just remember one day, as I'm reading these sort of booklets, I, in my head as a young kid, it kind of sort of twigged that most of these people, all these people I was reading about, had all died hundreds of years before I was even born. But they had, they had done something with their lives, like they had accomplished something. 
And that just sparked something inside me as a kid that I didn't want to be normal when I grew up. I wanted to accomplish something in my life. Like I wanted to achieve something. I wanted to be successful or something. I just didn't want to be average. And I, just, I, I honestly, it was so, it's so clear in my mind. I can take myself back. I just, as a kid, I just had this overwhelming desire when I got older to, to do something with my life. And how that then sort of manifested itself out as a kid, being a child, you're watching TV, I'm watching the adverts on the TV. And there was one advert in particular that inspired me as a kid. And it was British Telecom. And I remember, like I grew up in the era of Margaret Thatcher and it was all about the eye and all about making money. Um, and I just remember these BT adverts and the BT Tower in London. And I remember like going around my aunties and uncles houses and everyone had a BT um, landline. And then every street corner had a BT phone box. And I just remember saying to my uncle Tony one day, how much does British Telecom make? And at this point, I'm young, I'm eight years old. And he said, they make billions of pounds. And from that moment, that was my dream. When I was an adult, I was going to own British Telecom. Like I wanted to accumulate wealth. And I grew up, like I said, in the 1980s in London, where Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and everything. Like as a kid, it was just this stimulation of money. It was all about like the iron, making money and being wealthy, being wealthy. And, and that was my that was my dream as a kid. Like it was to it was to grow up and I wanted to own British Telecom. It was only when I love when I got it. To eight, it, it. It was when I got to eight years old that what you can class as like again, one of the most pivotal moments in my life was when my mum's ex-husband, um, Billy Tobin, come into my life. And the 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 sort of the short version of how I can explain my interaction with him for the first time. I was a young boy, again, eight years old. He comes into our home in, in South London. Um, very few males ever come into my home as a kid. Like I, couldn't, I can hardly remember any other than uncles. And he come in and I remember being in awe of him when he walked through the door. He, he had this big gold watch on, jet black hair, white teeth, like immaculately dressed, really shiny shoes. And he went into the living room and he asked me to make him a cup of tea. I went into our kitchen. I made him this cup of tea. I gave him the cup of tea. And I sat there and I was listening to him talk to my mum and my sister. And then when he left, he gave me a 20 pound note and he was the first adult to ever give me paper money. And he patted me on the head and says, you're a good boy. And then when he left straight away, that quizzic little boy says to my mum, who is he? Where's he from? And my mum explained to me that um, her and Billy had got married years before she met my dad. They grew up from when they were four years old together in South London. Again, both from big Irish families. They got married when my mum was 16, he was 16. And then my, my sister, that I just always thought was my actual sister, and she is my actual sister, but that was her real dad. And, and we didn't have the same dad. Um, and anyway, that was it. And then Billy started coming into my mum's my life, not to have a relationship, but to start like taking my sister out on the weekends. And then I think my mum at that time worked as a florist. She was on minimum wage. And Billy was coming around to take my sister out. And then Billy said, can Jonathan come? And I think my mum didn't want me to miss out on an opportunity because he was taking my sister to restaurants. He was taking her out to experience these nice things. So my mum let me go with my sister. And then what started ended up happening, as the weeks and months progressed, Billy stopped coming around to take my sister out and he started taking me out. Now, he didn't have a son. I didn't have a dad. And we just got drawn to each other. And, and he had all the trappings of wealth and success. But I thought it was at, at that time in my life, he had lots of money. Um, he always used to talk about money all the time. He had Mercedes, Porsches. He had an apartment on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. 
everything wow. was around everything was around money the, this money orientation all the time and and all of these older men like his friends that when i'd go around to one of their houses with him um again like i could always tell that, that, that it was very i can't that it was very exciting um these men didn't really seem laws and regulations weren't very applicable to them the way they used to speak about authority um and it was only when my granddad passed away when I was 12 and me and my mum went to clear my granddad's flat out that I found all these newspaper clippings and and Billy the man that was taking me out was one of the most prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom he had five acquittals at the old bailey the police tried to shoot him kill him twice on 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 in the in the sort of um in, in trying to the execution of committing armed robberies and and he was a multimillionaire 21 years old and I'm reading all these all these newspaper clippings that my granddad had in this big envelope. And I started connecting up all the dots, like what, where all this money was coming from that, that he was talking about all the time and the cars and the houses and, and all of these other men that he was exposing me to as a young kid. It sort of become very clear then that was probably what they all did as well. And wow. like, and were you frightened? Were you frightened when you heard that out? Like, was it kind of excited? frightening or did you kind of always no. smell it? Or was it, was it a surprise to you when, when you found that out? It, 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 it was a surprise to me, the, the, the sort of the extreme nature to where he sat within that, what he did in, in regards to committing criminality. Like I'd never, I kind of at that point started, like I said, like when I was interacting with these older men, I kind of got the, the impression they wasn't like average people. Like they didn't overtly speak about crime, but the way they spoke about life, being a young impressionable kid, you start realising like they're not talking about the police and the system, like my mum talked about it, or my aunties talk about it, because they were like my aunt, one of my aunties worked in the doctor's surgery. So then you're talking, you're around all these other men that are very dismissive of authority, the law, politicians. Um, so then it kind of like, as I said, those dots all started getting connected up. Then I, I kind of started putting the pieces of the puzzle together that they must have all done this. Cause I started, cause I was, I was about 12 years old at this point. So I did start having a bit more awareness. So once I come away from that situation, then I was far more inquisitive with Billy and I did start asking him questions. Um, and then obviously, cause I then knew, cause up to that point, he'd never told me he'd been in prison before. So when I did ask him, he didn't like to talk about prison to me because he felt like talking about prison was bad luck. And he told mm. me that one day. And then once I started talking to him about crime, that's when I can only say to you, probably that's where like what you could class as like the apprenticeship um, and the schooling wow. of that world that start, I started that process that I started going through because I think when he made that decision when he was a young man and and there are reasons why he did that why he decided to become a criminal and and the the things events in his younger life that shaped him like when he was 16 years old he witnessed his father get murdered by three men um in front of him now, up to that point and my mum always says this he was going to work he was working on a building site um grew up in South London he watched his dad get killed. And then once that happened, that sent him on a trajectory where he started then hanging out with the wrong people. And then he ended up becoming one of the most prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom and a high profile um, armed robber. Um, and that was how he sort of shifted. But when he, when he went into that world, I, I remember him telling me a story about how someone sort of took him under their wing, who was an organized criminal. And I feel like that's what he then did with me. And he started schooling me in the art of, of that world, like not talking in cars, not talking in your house. Um, 
And again, I feel embarrassed saying this sort of stuff now, but not trusting women. Um, it was like not trusting your partner because they could testify you against against you at court, not telling people stuff, not trusting them, and, and having a lot of distrust in people wow. other than your other than your circle of people. Now, when I look back on that now, that can deeply affect a human being, a young man growing up into adulthood, when you start having this deep distrust in in authority, in in individuals, in people other than your small little group of people. Um, and it can make you a very imbalanced human being. Is anyone yeah. on back on that now? I imagine it must be quite split. Like there's two parts of yourself. There's yourself with your your gang and your crew, and then there's yourself, you know, putting on a show. So you're kind of almost yeah, like... to- to- totally. And like that didn't really start playing itself out until I started becoming like a teenager. That when I did start engaging in that in that behaviour, and I did start really getting involved in crime, you do live a double life. Like no one knows who you are. Like. Um, I remember it was like being out one night with my cousin and and a, and a few of his friends and um, his girlfriend worked for a bank in the city um, in finance. And one of her friends said to me, what do you do for a living? My instant reaction wasn't, well, I go and do this or do that. Why are you asking me that for? And this is this suspicion of paranoia oh, yeah. all the time of other people. Why do people want to talk to you? Why is someone <laughs> approaching you? And, and that because... You're growing up in this world as a kid and you're hearing all these stories about undercover police officers and probes in houses and people telling their wife something and then having an affair behind their wife's back and then their, their wife testifies them against them at court. So you end up developing this sort of paranoia around everyone and this distrust other than the people that are really tight and close to you. So I started going through this journey as a very young kid because it was about 12, 13, 14 years old at this point, like these fundamental parts of my life. So where then suddenly, when I'm at school, like like I said before, at the beginning, like I used to love learning as a child, but then suddenly, like I was never in trouble with the police as a kid, and then suddenly my my teachers at school were like my authority figures, and they're the people that are oh, telling me what, of I, authority what, again. what I can can and can't do, and I'm listening to them, and then I'm like thinking, well. I've already been told that you're you're an extension of the state. And, and as a young person, a young mind, looking at that, I started becoming disrespectful towards my teachers because it became irrelevant what they were trying to program me to be. Um, and then they're telling me if I don't get an A in English or maths, I'm not going to amount to anything in my life. And then I'm I'm going home and then I'm I'm sort of associating with all these men that are multimillionaires committing criminal activity. They're not academically clever, but they're very streetwise. And wow. And then I'm, I'm going back to school. And then again, my teachers are reiterating it. And I think my, because I, I had an amazing, I, I, I hope he's listening to this. I, I always hope when I do these things, he listens to, right, he listens to one of them. But I had an amazing teacher called Mr. Vickers. And my teachers, I know, because a lot of my family are in the national newspapers and stuff, knew what my home life was like. So even when I was truanting from school, they did everything they could to get me in. They didn't want to permanently exclude me because they they wanted they wanted me to at least come through the education system. And he was just an incredible man that did everything he could to keep me in school. And, and I remember when I went to sit my GCSEs, I never done any coursework leading into the exams because I was truanting so much because I just I did complete fragrant disregard for my schooling. Like to me, it wasn't going to get me what I wanted in life. And I just thought it was a complete waste of time. So I would just truant and not turn up to my sessions and stuff. And my mum got really upset when, when I had to sit my GCSEs because she said, you have to leave school with something. You can't, you can't leave school with no qualifications. 
And I remember she got upset and she cried and your mum's your mum. And I didn't like to see my mum getting upset. So I thought just to appease her, I went in and I sat my GCSEs, just the exams. And I just remember going back to pick my, my exam results up and Mr Vickers was in the assembly hall and he had a, a big envelope and, and had all, obviously all the grades in it of what I got. And he said, do you want me to read them or do you want to look, open them? And I just, again, just disregarded it. I didn't care. I said, yeah, you tell me what I got. And he opened up the envelope and he looked at me and I'll never forget this. He, he shook his head and he said, if only you would have applied yourself what you could have done. And I still managed to get like decent grades considering I didn't do any coursework in, in, the, in any of the, any of the, um, in any of the su subjects. And he, he said to me, what are you going to do now? And I lied and said, I'm going to college. And he rang up my mum every single week when I left school. I remember my mum said, Mr. Vickers, this is bearing when I've left school at this point. Like, I'm, I'm done. And he You're said, doing your apprenticeship. Yeah, is John enrolled at college? Is he enrolled at college? And 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 my mum, my mum said Jerry has, and obviously she lied on my behalf because he's my mum, and and he, he just wanted to make sure that I I was doing something productive. But yeah, when he when he gave me those results, I walked down the end of the school drive, and I ripped them up and chucked them in the bin because they they were just irrelevant to my life. They wasn't going to get me what and I wanted you, at that point. Had you started? You had started your apprenticeship like with Billy or whatever. And were you earning money at that stage and kind of getting involved in organized crime? So Billy, so again, going through that stage of being a young kid, like learning how to drive cars, like all, all of these things that like most kids would learn off their parents and stuff were like a positive manner. Like they're, growing up, Billy was teaching me how to drive lorries and cars and big vehicles, machinery. Um, he was already putting me through this process, like little tasks of dropping stuff off and picking stuff up. It was never anything hard, but it was just enough to make some pocket money of that, if I can put it like that. Like it was never running around with guns and drugs. He never put me in that sort of situation as a kid. Um, it was more odd jobs for him. Um, when he taught me to drive, um, and when I was 16 years old, like I was driving him about, um, I didn't have a driving license, but he was with me in the passenger seat. He was he used to let me, like there was a, I talk about it in my book when like, he would have this thing about calling my bluff all the time, like to see like how much bottle I had. So one day I'm moaning um, when one of the one of the times where I did go to school, I was moaning because we lived seven miles from school and I didn't want to get the bus and, I'm, and it was, I was using an excuse not to go. And and I remember him saying to me, he said he was basically stop effing moaning about it. And if you're a man, drive the car and drive to school. So he let me drive. He had this Porsche 911 and he let me drive to school in it. But it was always a test. It was always a test on his behalf to see whether I wasn't just all talk. Um, but, and I often say this sometimes, that you can't blame everyone for the bad if you don't blame them for good, because what he did teach me as a kid was I had to interact with different groups of people. I didn't need to trust them, but I needed to have the ability to be able to socialise in different settings. He didn't, he said, you can't just grow up and just socialise with criminals. So when I was a young kid, like he would, when he would go meet an accountant or a lawyer or anyone, he would take me with him and it'd be in a restaurant because I was quite a shy child when I was little because I didn't have a dad. I, I used to always behind my mum and I remember he used to watch it. And he said, you need to develop your skills. You need to learn to be able to speak and converse with people. You can't rely on other people to do anything in life. If you want something done, you've got to do it yourself. And obviously, later on in my life, that served me really well. Um, but so, yeah, so, he, so, so he really had a collection of skills. Like he wasn't just honing you to be a criminal. He also kind of had your best intentions through the lens of an eyes of a criminal, like really? Uh, yeah, 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 totally. Like I've, I've come across a lot of people in my life, like, 
as as someone that has spent a big chunk of my life in prison and then come out and I, and I've mixed with just a vast array of different people in society from from people that are athletes to politicians to lawyers to judges to this massive this massive sort of array of people but he was head and shoulders one of the most charismatic men I've ever met like wow. he, he, he genuinely was like it's very hard for me to express it like when when I was little, I remember like going to a restaurant with him, and he was always the centre of attention. He was very, he was very, um, he had a lot of confidence. He was very charismatic, and he, he he's like he used to have a few glasses of wine, and then he'd, he'd be up. And if there was a if there was like a karaoke machine in there, or there was someone in, he would start singing Frank Sinatra. I've done it my way, and I know this sounds like very, it seems very like filmish and Sopranos, but that's what it was like. Like when <laughs> we used to go to like. We used to go to a restaurant in South South London called um, El Pirate in Blackheath. And Blackheath's a very affluent area. You get like a lot of people that are like middle class that live there. And you would have all these like, basically, I don't think it's there anymore, but you'd get all these people. It was our hub for organised criminals to go. So you go in there and you'd have people, like people that were in there that got out of prison for armed robbery, for drug trafficking. And they just take the whole restaurant over. And then, like, you'd have normal people come in for their meal. And saying you've got all these men standing up, they're going behind the bar, they're helping themselves to drinks, but they're all paying for everything. No one's bullying anyone. But you're growing up as a kid, and I'm 15 years old, I'm looking at all these charismatic men, and but Billy just stood out above them. Like, he was, he, he, and, he, and he still is today. Like, he was one of the most charismatic, magnetising men um, that I've ever come across. Like, his and, and is, he is he still alive today? He is, and and sadly um, for him, I, I when I got arrested when I was eighteen years old, so twenty years ago nearly, he got arrested, and he's never been out of prison since. He's um uh. he's been in maximum security for twenty years now. He got convicted of um, conspiracy to commit armed robbery and possession of firearms, and he's yeah, he's been in a maximum security prison because he he won't he won't go through the rehabilitation courses in prison. Um, he won't he won't admit his he won't admit his guilt. And if you don't admit your guilt, you can't then go on the rehabilitation courses. So sadly, he's like he's now he's a man, what in his nearly seventies, um, wow. and it, and it's sad to see. Like I I, I I can remember clearly the last time I saw him, um, I'd been arrested for conspiracy to commit armed robbery when I was eighteen years old, and he'd been arrested for the for the offences in prison for today. And I was in the reception area of Belmarsh Prison. So when you're under the age of twenty one years old you can't be kept in an adult prison. You have to be kept with young offenders. But the Metropolitan Police believed I was a high escape risk because of Billy and my family. So they transferred me as a Category A young offender to a maximum security prison in Milton Keynes called Wood Hill. And then every time I had to go to the Old Bailey to go on trial or to go for like pleas of directions, they would transport me from Wood Hill down to Belmarsh. And I was in the reception area of Belmarsh Prison and I was in this holding cell and I was sitting there and they put you in this yellow and green category A suit to be transferred to court. And then he's like seven prison officers put you in the back of this massive like um, bomb proof van and they, they escort, they take you to court. So you don't go with like normal sort of um, G4S or Serco take you to court. And I remember hearing his voice and I screamed out in this room, Billy, Billy, Billy. And he already heard me. And I remember saying to the prison officer, can I see my boy? And then, and then I just saw that in the when I was sitting in the cell, there's there's like a little metal flap that the prison officer looked through, um, a little glass slit, and and I ran up to it and I looked at him, and ah, uh, it was it was it was horrible. Like to see a man 
that when you grew up as a kid, you saw as like Superman and this invincible, charismatic person. And then suddenly he was just this man in a, and again, the same sort of color suit as me, this green and yellow escape suit, handcuffed to a prison officer that was half his age, surrounded by prison officers. Um, it was just sad to see like someone that you idolized as a kid and he just looked so vulnerable and weak. And, um, and that was the last time I saw him. And that was when I was 18 years old. I've not seen uh-huh. him. And so, so just to fill in the piece of the puzzle for anyone who's listening, you might not know. So at 18, so you went, you had this, this apprenticeship with Billy and it kind of got you into organized crime. And then at 18, you got sent to prison on, on two life sentences. Was that the episode at 18 no. or was that more than like 20? Was it? Yeah, that, that was when I was, tw- I got the two life sentences when I was 22. When I was, when I was 18, I got arrested for conspiracy to commit robbery. So the police organized crime um, were, had Billy under surveillance. They arrest him. They never arrested me, um, but they suspected I was involved in 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 committing um, armed robberies. So what they did, they handed that over to the Metropolitan Police's flying squad, which is the robbery squad. And then they then put me under surveillance. And again, my arrogance, because I knew Billy got arrested, was I just continued doing it. I didn't, I had just again fragrant disregard for the law at this point. I my the trajectory of of um of of it of going into that world just when I left school. It just rocketed, like literally rocketed. I went from being a 16-year-old kid to suddenly I'm hanging out with all these like organized criminals as a criminal. Like I before I was on the periphery edges because I was still a kid. But then once you get immersed into that world, I was completely immersed in it. And Billy got arrested. And then the police ended up basically put me under surveillance. Um, and when I was on my way to go and commit a robbery, the police had an ambush. And um I got ambushed on the side of the road. I had a car chase. I nearly got away um, and I, I did actually get away from the scene. And when sort of when I went to the phone box, because I always used to wear shorts underneath my clothes. So if if anything ever went wrong, I'd have shorts and T-shirts. So if I was running, people would just think I was a jogger. I wasn't like running down the street or anything with like tracksuits and stuff on. And then I always used to have like Billy used to teach me to have like a 20 pound note tucked in my sock in case you needed to get a taxi or a train home if something went wrong when you went to commit a crime. And I was at this phone box and I was trying to call this like minicab to pick me up. And I heard the scar screech up. And then these, I just looked around and just saw this massive man mountain running towards me ever done. And I just thought I'm dead. And I genuinely, because I didn't process what was happening. Um, and anyway, they threw me on the floor and then all these other cars, undercover cars turned up and then they, they identified themselves as the robbery squad. And then I was kind of relieved because at that point I thought I was going to get killed. <laughs> and they put me in the back of the car um, and then they just said to me, like, basically, you, your time's up. Like, you've had a good innings. It's all over. We know all about your, your stepdad. We know this. We know that. And I, and like I said, I got remanded into custody. Um, and because of the, un- the unique situation with Billy and all of the people that the police had seen me around and my family, they believed I was a high escape risk. So that was why I couldn't be kept in a young offenders institution. So they, they basically did something. They called it starring up where when you're under the age of 21, they then put you in a maximum security adult prison and then you're a category A prisoner. So then I'm walking into this maximum security prison in Wood Hill, in Milton Keynes, um, going onto this wing where you get on all these men, again, involved in drug trafficking, armed robbery, serious and organised crime. You've got this young kid walking onto this wing and then suddenly you're, you're being lavished with all this praise of all these organised criminals. You kept your mouth shut. You haven't grasped anyone up. Um, and it sort of so then that starts feeding in again to the encouragement that you're getting and the praise that you're getting off men that you admire and look up to. 
And how, which, how long how long did you have that time? Was that just a two year, three year kind of thing? So, that, so I, I was looking at 16 years at the beginning. Um, and then I got offered a plea bargain at, uh, at the Old Bailey two days before my trial started. And then they gave me the they gave me five years for conspiracy to commit robbery. And that was where, again, a definitive moment in my life was when I then went back from the old Bailey back to um, back to prison. They then downgraded me. And then I went to a young offenders institution. And that's where I kind of then found sport. Because when I was in that situation of being incarcerated um, in the young offenders institution, it's a very different vibe. Like. When, when I got transferred from this maximum security male adult prison into this young offenders institution, before I was known as John, the prison officers were very respectful. And actually, sometimes they, they admired, because they would always see people that committed the crime I committed as like a proper criminal. Like you wasn't in there for like sexual offences or, um, or, do, or do anything towards old people. So you would always get put on a pedestal. And being a young kid, being at that level of security, you, they, would, they, would, they would sort of put you up on that pedestal even more. But then when I got moved to the Young Offenders Institution, it's like everything is like a, an iron rod, like because they're dealing with kids that are like, they're boisterous, they've got loads of testosterone, they're fighting, so they're, they're really, really strict. So I go there and um, when I went to my cell, when I went for the reception area, a, couple, a day later, the prison officers come to my cell and they wanted me to take all my clothes off and they wanted to put me in a, a special tracksuit called the e-list tracksuit that when they think you're going to try to escape they put you in this bright yellow tracksuit so prison officers can see you're a high escape risk of that prison and the reason they did that was because I'd come from an adult prison as a category a prison of downgraded and they still thought that I still posed a risk to try to escape from young offenders and and I and again it pains me today I can't express to you and the viewers how much hatred I had in my body towards the state towards um prison officers like i was as i was as difficult as what i could be in that situation and again that all come from billy and all the stories i'd heard from all of his friends about when you go to prison it's about not showing weakness not breaking not allowing the state the system to break you down so then when i went there and they tried to take my clothes i refused they put me in a segregation cell for seven days for refusing that lawful order and obviously you're in their world so they did take my clothes. Um, they put me in a yellow suit. And then when that seven days was up, they, they opened up the door. They said, when you go on the wing, you're going to be a wing cleaner. And, that, and I said, that's not going to happen. Um, I'm not going up on that wing and cleaning up your crap every day. And they put me back in front of the governor, the governor of the prison. He gave me another seven days confined to cell in segregation cell. And as he'd done it, and as I got up to walk out, he looked at me and he said, listen, McAvoy, but you're in my world. You're, I'm not in your world. You do what I tell you to do. And he smiled at me. And again, the hatred in my body towards him and, and these people around me, because before, like when I was growing up, like the state, the system, it was everywhere. It was, it was unfair. It was corrupt. Um, but suddenly when you go to prison, it's, it's real. Like there's a human being locking you in a cage. Um, yeah, an and they've got that sense of that power over you. And anyway, when they put me in that cell for another seven days, I just remember, I don't, it, again, it was a perfect storm of events where they can't stop you from reading and there was a librarian that come around and, and I took a book off the, tro the, the library trolley and it was, there was about Nelson Mandela. And when he was in prison in Robin Island, he used to smoke cigarettes. And he realised that the prison officers was using the fact that he smoked tobacco as a punishment that they could take away from him. So they could take his cigarettes away from him. 
So then what he did, he never smoked a cigarette ever again because he said, I'm relinquishing any power that you've got over me. And my mind as a 19-year-old was, well, wait there. If you think by putting me in this room is the greatest punishment you can do to me in this situation, I'll take it away from you. So then when you come to... And when you're in that, like, what is your mindset like? Because that's like, you know, we've all watched movies, you know, of prisoners and whatever, and they're putting these... I don't I have no idea what it might be like, but I imagine you're isolated. You're completely by yourself. And you've somehow got to find the will to exist beyond hatred and mm-hmm. anger. Like, what? Like, are you just sitting there fuming for seven days by yourself? Like, yeah. So, like, when, so, so when I read that book and I read that and I made that mental correlation between taking away the power from them, taking, taking, having control of my situation and my environment was, well, if you think by putting me in here, there is the punishment, I'll take it. So, I then never left that room for 365 days. Like that wasn't to come out for exercise. Even Christmas Day, they opened up the door and they said, do you want to phone your mum? And, and you know what? When I look back now, there was, there was a great prison officer there. And, he, and, he, and I remember he pleaded with me on Christmas Day. And he said, do you want to come out and phone up your mum? Because you haven't used the phone. And I said, no. Because to me, that was, that was them trying to break me and trying to take me out of that situation and trying Jeez, to coerce me. hard on yourself. But, but it was... It, again, it was the environment in which I was surrounded by, by the people I was around as a kid. It was militant. Like when I was in that situation, I was like, I will not be broken by these people. And I made a decision at that point when I, I, I never thought for a moment when I went down that path that I was going to end up spending the next like calendar year locked in a, in a box basically for 365 days. But when I made a decision that I wasn't going to, submit and do what they wanted me to do I had to develop a coping strategy in that situation so one I read books and I went to educate myself and two I started exercising and the only reason like when I was at school I hated PE I never liked sport as a kid I wasn't interested in it but when I was locked in that cell it made me feel alive like I was doing these cell circuits these thousand repetitions of burpees step-ups press-ups and when I started at the beginning believe me I was overweight I was unfit. I wasn't, I, I, like, I wasn't doing it to be an athlete or for aesthetics. I literally did it because it made me feel like I was a human being. And I'd start doing 10 press-ups, 10 burpees, 10 squats. And I'd have to get my prison um, chair and pull it to the back of my cell because you had these little vents on the window. And it was the only little bit of breeze you got into the cell and you just sweat incessantly. So it was just this nice, when you was doing these step-ups to just feel a bit of breeze in your face. And like I said, as the months progressed, I'd end up doing a thousand of each exercise and my whole body just completely changed. Like I was, I was a little bit overweight and then suddenly like I'm slim. And, um, and how did, so, okay. So, so, you, so you're 19 there and then you get caught again and you're back in at 21 and you've got two life sentences. And just, just to fast, cause I know there's so much stuff you like, I feel like I could talk to, we could both talk to you for a week, but you're, you're, you're back in there serving two life sentences. And you've got this absolute deep hatred for the system. And somehow you form this friendship with this prisoner officer called Darren, who sees this physical ability within you and sees a light in you when you probably couldn't see it within yourself. And like, can you talk a bit about that, about that relationship with Darren and about the somehow you went from this world of complete hatred and then you found like you went on this journey yeah, like, yeah, like, and, and again, like, what's, so when, so when I go back to prison again, when I'm in my early 20s, again, it's the, it's the state, um, and I, and, and they were rightly so, because if I could have broken out and escaped, I would have got out, like, I had no intention to sit in that prison for two life sentences, 
So when I when I got arrested, they put me in a high security unit in Belmarsh Prison. Um, that was built in the 1990s to house the IRA. It was it was the highest um, the, the the high security prison in Western Europe. It was a prison within a prison. Um, very draconian, locked up for 23 hours a day on a tiny little unit. What was with Shekel Abu Hamza, 21-7 suicide bombers. You're in this very draconian environment. And again, it just, it magnified and it just fostered more hate inside me and not breaking and not being weak. I get moved out of there when I get these two life sentences and they transfer me to a convicted prison. I go to Full Sutton in Yorkshire. I don't want to rehabilitate. I don't want to change because to me, I was always brought up to believe if, if the prison service and the prison system changed you, you was weak and you'd been broken by the state. So then they moved me from there to a category B prison, which is a lower security prison. And when I'm there, my life completely changed in 2009 um, when my best friend died. Uh, I found out he died committing a, a robbery in the Netherlands. Um, we grew up together as kids. And I had never in my life ever had loss. Like I've, I've been around people and heard of people being killed and they've gone to prison for the rest of their lives and all these bad things have happened to people. But like I'd never experienced personal loss where someone that I loved and cared for, it happened to someone close to me. It was always other people. And when I found out, and ironically I'm talking to you guys now, but it's so clear to me that when this situation occurred and I found this news out that my friend had died. It was when the, it was the night the Republic of Ireland was playing France in the World Cup in the qualifier. And I, I remember it. I couldn't believe at half time the Republic of Ireland was still in the game because I, I just thought like, France <laughs> was going to kill him. I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. And I, and I phoned up my cousin at half time and I said to him, are you watching this game? And he went to me, are you on your own? And I said, yeah. And even I got something to tell him, I said, what? And he said, Aaron's died. And I, and I couldn't. I couldn't process what he said. I was in disbelief. And, and I, I just, it, it was so, such a powerful experience. And honestly, like, I, I'm not an emotional person. I, I don't, I can't remember that many times in my life where I've cried, but I was in that cell and I, I couldn't stop crying. And the next night on ITN News at 10, um, because they were from Britain and the, and the, the crime was committed in the Netherlands, um, they, they robbed a, a cash machine and as they were driving away, the car flipped because the tyre blew out and my friend died, three other guys from Liverpool died and the driver broke his back. And because they were British, it was on News at 10 and I remember them showing the CCTV of, of the cash machine and I remember one of the, one of the guys, my friend, um, sprayed a CCTV camera with aerosol and before he did it, the camera froze and I could see his eyes through his bag of lava. And I just remember looking at the last moments of my mate's life, lost. He, he never reached his potential in life. He never, he never reached what he could have done. He never got married. Um, he was a beautiful person. And I, I often say this, like, good people do do bad stuff. He got completely sucked into that toxic, vile, horrible, negative life. And then when that happened and I, and I watched those moments, I just remember, man, look, I was sitting in his cell and I had this, this, this £16,000 Rolex Daytona on my wrist. And I realised how pathetic it all was. Like, from that little kid that grew up that went to achieve something in my life, I was literally just pissing my life away down into a drain. And I just knew from that moment, like, I just didn't want that life anymore. Like, looking up to Billy and all of his friends, they were all old men sitting in prison. They never achieved anything in their lives. And I was a young man, and I was just rotting in this cage. And I, and I, was, at, I was at this, I was in, in my head, this so-called war that I was in with the state and the system, 
And realistically, they had me where they wanted me. Like, they had me in the cage, boxed off. I didn't have a life. Like, I wasn't at war with them. Like, I was losing the battle. Like, I was losing that game. Like, it was my life on this earth. And I just made the decision that night. I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm out. This, I'm out this world. And I was lost because I gave up my formal education as a kid. I didn't know what path I could take. And I remember going going downstairs the next morning for breakfast in a communal eating area. And you had all these prisoners talking about stabbing people. And I just, I can't be around these people. And I need to get away from these people. And I often say, it's like being a drug addict, locked in a crack den trying to get off drugs. And I was locked in this prison and I couldn't get out. I couldn't just walk out and say, look, I've changed. Please let me out now. Um, I knew I was trapped. And I went down to the prison gym and I, um, I saw a prisoner one day rowing a million metres for charity. And he had as many gym sessions as he wanted. Because um, in prison, you only get three gym sessions a week in most prisons because it's to stop you from mixing with different wings because of gangs and stuff. And this prisoner, Mickey, was on the round machine every day. And I asked him what he's doing. And he told me, he said, I'm rowing a million metres over the course of however many months. He said, like, you should say you want to do it and raise some money for charity and they'll give you a special note to come down to the gym as much as you want. And I did that. And I rode the first million metres in a month. And I just remember being on this round machine the first time and it completely transcended me out of that place, mentally, psychologically, spiritually. It took me out. It elevated me out. And I remember, like, I didn't understand what endorphins were, but it just absolutely lifted me out of that prison. When I was looking at these numbers on that machine and I remember that that rhythmical just up and down and, up and down and, and I did the first million in a month and I thought wow I want to keep doing this it's going to keep getting me off the wing keep me away from prisoners keep me away from prison officers and I asked if I could do another million and then I did another million and that was three months around every single day and when I got to three million meters one day a prisoner went to me you do realize if you row five million that's equivalent to around across the Atlantic and I thought it was a cool thing to say I'd achieved and as I was through that process around that final two million meters one day I went to row 10k as hard as I could. And Darren, the prison officer, walked behind me and looked over my shoulder and he just said, wow, that is really quick. Because bear in mind, like, I'm in prison. I don't really understand what an athlete is. I just knew on that round machine, in that prison, no one could get near me. Um, and he went away and he came back a couple of days later and he gave me all these pieces of paper and they had all the world and British records and indoor round machine. And he planted this seed in my head. And I went and asked him a couple of days after that whether it would be possible if I could try to break some of them. And, and he went away to the governor and, and again, like the, the stars aligned. The governor was a deeply Christian man and Darren went to him and went, I really believe this could be the catalyst for turning this man's life around. And I really think we should, we should help him as much as we can, allowing him to do these records. And he wow. agreed to it. And man, I'm honestly, I'm being serious with you. Like, I can't even begin to tell you, like, even me getting transferred to that prison Darren worked in was a mistake because I should never have got moved there because the, the sentence I was doing, they did not accept those sorts of prisons serving those sentences. So if someone wouldn't have made a mistake on a computer system the day I got sentenced in 2007, I would never have got transferred to that prison where Darren was working. I would never have met Darren and then I would never have gone on to do what I'd done. And when I attempted to break the first record, which was for the marathon, I broke it by seven minutes. And, and honestly, like, I can't even verbalise it, but I'll do the best that I can. When I broke that record and I was laying on that gym mat in that prison gym, everything I'd ever wanted as a child to not be average and be good at something and accomplish something in my life and feel like I'd done something and been successful, I felt like it in that moment on that gym mat. And it was never about money. Like, to me, my head as a young person... The acquisition of wealth was never about buying stuff. It was because I had made this attachment to the more money I had, 
the more successful I would be as I got older. And that would be my legacy. That would be what I'd accomplish for my life. It was never about having money so I could go and buy 20 houses and be ostentatious with it in front of other people. Um, and when I broke that record, that was sort of the catalyst. And I knew I could use my body as a vehicle to get me out of that life. But one of the biggest, sort of the most important parts of this story is that relationship with Darren, because at 26 years old, he was the first male I'd ever had in my life that wanted me to succeed just because he wanted me to succeed. There was no ulterior motive in it. He, he used to come in on his days off. He would sit with me when it, with those records. He'd bring me in books. And we developed this, like, because bear in mind, mate, like, I was militant when I was in prison in regards to my relationship with authority. Like, I detested them. And then suddenly, when I realised I had to relinquish this ego that I had wrapped up my identity within this criminal world that was just a load of shit, um, me sitting in a prison gym, having a conversation with a prison officer about families, him talking about his kids, and me generally having an interest in him um, and liking him as a man, was, was it was a big no-no within that world, like a big, big no-no. And did, did, the other, did the other prisoners kind of see that you were forming, that you were changing, and were they kind of almost like preying on you? Like, was that part of the... Like, do, you know, do you know what I think? That you in were some weakening regards, or whatever. Yeah, in, in some regards, I think what... I, I think in a normal set of circumstances, yes, I would, I would have been what they would have class. And at this point, I genuinely didn't care. Like, I realised... I had to let go of my, my, my ego, my identity wrapped up within that world and I had to completely detach from it. So I stopped writing letters to people outside of prison. I stopped communicating with people outside of prison. I kept my contact within the prison setting as minimal as I could. I didn't talk about anything negative with inmates. I used to walk away from conversations if they started talking about stuff. I wasn't interested in prison politics anymore. I didn't, I wasn't, I, I wanted to dis disconnect from that. And my, I had realised I had to relinquish that ego now. So I didn't care, even if what people a thought- massive it, transformation, like. It, it, may, it, it was, but I, I, was, I, was, I had enough awareness and what I'd seen over the years with other people, I, I wanted to make a complete disconnection from that part of my life because I realised how toxic and vile it was. And it wasn't just me, it was the, the destruction that I caused to society. It was the destruction that I caused to my mum's life. Um, and my family's like people that love me, my sister, like they brought me up to be a good person. And then someone, something happened in my life as a kid and, and a negative role model come in and that sort of pushed me down or encouraged me to go down the wrong road. And when I had this, this, this awareness of watching other people throughout time and trying to turn their lives around, and even I didn't necessarily agree with it all the time, they would always get sucked back in because they would be in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. And I didn't want that to happen to me. And I realized, like I read a book in prison called The Secret, about the laws of attraction. Yeah. And I, I, I wanted to project that. I wanted to be a beacon of positivity and I wanted to attract that into my life. And, and I believe that attracted Darren and Darren saw something inside me. So prisoners probably would have seen me as being like a screwboy or a grass or an informer, but in normal circumstances. But I think because of, because of what I was doing athletically and through sport, that suppressed how a lot of people perceived that relationship with me and Darren. Because what, for instance, I remember I broke the world record in prison for the most amount of distance road in 24 hours. And, and again, it was like something out of a film. So Darren managed to get this special dispensation that the governor, and, and believe me, to allow a prisoner outside his cell for 24 hours to sit in the prison gym is like, 
it's nearly as near to being impossible as what you'd get. But Darren found, again, that one prison officer, that, that the governor of the prison, Gareth Sands, that granted me that, that note to allow me to do it. Darren come in on his day off and he sat with me for 24 hours as I rode him around. Him, right? And when I went back on the wing, what ended up happening, when I started on the Saturday, about 4 p.m., prisoners were still in the gym and then they go back to the wing, they have their dinner, they lock up, then they come out the next morning. And obviously then they go to the gym and have their gym session on Sunday. So the whole prison's talking about this, this mad guy on a round machine, a prisoner, and he's trying to break this world record. Now they probably didn't have confidence that I'd do it. So anyway, so if they've gone, they've gone back to the wing that night on a Saturday, they've had their dinner, they've watched the football, they've gone to bed, they've woke up next morning, they've had breakfast and they've come back down the gym and there's me and Darren and I'm still chugging away like a diesel engine, still like hitting those <laughs> And these people are like, just they're like, what on earth? How on earth are you still going? And they just couldn't believe it. And anyway, I finished the record at 4 p.m. on the Sunday. And when I went back on the wing, like it was literally like something out of the, have you ever seen the Italian job where they go on the wing and everyone's clapping like they got when he's yeah. walking back and he's Victorian risen and that's what it's like there was there was prisons over about because because what ended up happening was like I become like this like uh, the champion of the prison that like, I was competing against all these people outside of prison and everyone was like wanting me to be successful so like every single time after that like because when you're in prison you get um you get your prison canteen each week so you can only spend like 15, 20 pound a week on like on luxuries like toilet roll and um like chocolate and tuna, whatever, whatever people eat in prison. Um, and obviously you're limited to the amount of money you can spend. So when you buy porridge and you buy fruit and stuff, it's quite expensive. So you run out of your money. But every time I was doing like records and stuff, like prisoners were like, having a chip in, they was all doing a whip round and they were coming, they were they were donating snicker bars and Mars bars and because they wanted me to try to break these records that these people outside <laughs> of prison are dead. And, it, and, and what happened, it, it brought people together, mate. And it, it was, um, I just got amazing support. Like, I've got some photographs, I'll share them with you afterwards. When I broke one of the records for, for um, it was actually for the 24 hours, like, they allowed a, a select group of inmates to come down and, and watch me finish it off. And they, they supported me as I rode the last sort of 10,000 metres. Wow. So you went from almost being like a snitch or, a, I think, a grasser to suddenly being celebrated, a hero. So it was almost like the path that almost been... I yeah, know, it, it came. It, yeah, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't think I ever got labelled that because because of when me and Darren come together, because it because of that point, like the, the the athletic part of the relationship, people negated the fact that he was a prison officer, and I think inmates looked and thought, oh, actually, he's supporting him and trying to help him, and they they understood that relationship. If that makes sense, yeah, I think yeah, if, okay. it, if it was a normal set of circumstances and it was me and him sitting in the office on the wing, it would have been a very different sort of conversation. Yeah. She's amazing. What a story. And then can you continue on how you came out? Because I, I just think it's the remarkable story about the transformation. It seemed like like sport was the vehicle which helped you start this new uh, rebirth. Uh, or, almost. Or one question I had was, so, so you went from having two life sentences and here you are, you had set these world records, you broke seven British titles, you had two world records and you were smashing it. And then how do you turn around when you've got like, how I understand two life sentences, it's like two lives. You're in jail for two lives. But then when you, when you agree to rehabilitate and go, you know, you know, heal, does that mean you can get off quicker? Obviously it does in your case. I just don't really understand how it works. So to really simplify a life sentence. So, uh, so when you get life in Britain, how it works, so I got something, a discretionary life sentence. So, now, 
they, they were abolished in, in the UK. You can't get my sentence anymore. It was made obsolete. The European, it got taken to the European Court of Human Rights and they said judges didn't have the right to hand down discretionary life sentences. So if you commit murder, you get life no matter what. You're getting life of a minimum tariff, depending on the severity of the murder in regards of, was it premeditated? Was there a sexual element to it? And that's where the tariff goes up. So that, you might start off at 12 years. If it was with a firearm, it'd take up to a minimum of 20 years. If it was a contract, it takes up to a minimum of 30 years. So in my regard, it was a discretionary life sentence. So the judge, when I got sentenced, has got me in front of him. I'm 24 years old. I'm a double category A prisoner. Armed police are surrounding the courtroom. Jury are all in protection. He's looking at me as a 24-year-old man, and this is what he's basically said. My links to the criminal underworld were so extensive from such a young age, he believed the likelihood of me being rehabilitated was very remote. And he believed if I did get released from prison, if I did reoffend, it would be to the higher end of the statutory book of, of criminality. And he believed the, 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 the public would always need be would always need protecting from me. So what they what he did, he handed me down life for conspiracy to commit robbery. And and I'm not saying I'm hard done by it. I fully accept the consequences of my actions. They weren't mistakes. They were poor life decisions and what I thought were right at that moment in time, what, what, what was normalised to me as a kid. Um, so I get these life sentences. He sentences me. And like I said, I had no, when he said it was, it, did, it went over my head because I, I had no intentions to sit there and serve those life sentences. But what life means is he, if he was going to give me a fixed term that day and said, I'm going to give you X amount of years for your crime, he would have given me 10 years. But what he said was, of that 10 years, you would have been eligible for parole on five years. So he gives you the, he gave me life for conspiracy to commit robbery and he gave me life for possession of firearms with a minimum tariff of five years. Now, anyone that gets a life sentence at court will know no one gets out on their minimum tariff. But what it does, if you don't demonstrate to the probation service that you have been rehabilitated, they can keep you in prison for the rest of your life by law. So you serve your minimum five years, then you're eligible for parole, but then you've got to demonstrate you've been rehabilitated. Now, if you've been fighting in prison, taking drugs in prison, been violent in prison, um, you, you're obviously not ever going to get released from prison. There's a lot of cases of people getting tariffs of four years. They've been in for 20 years. Like, so you have to demonstrate. Now, when you do get released from prison, so like we're on this podcast now, I am technically still serving that life sentence, but now in the community. So when you get out of prison, if the police are watching you or your probation officer, you miss a couple of meetings, they don't have to prove you've been involved in crime. They just have to suspect you've been involved in crime and then they can recall you and you go back to prison. If you commit another wow. offence as you're out, you go back to prison on your life sentence and then you've got to go through the whole rigmarole are going for a parole hearing again and again and again. So, and and do you have the whole parole? Or like now that you're out, do you still have a parole officer for the rest of your life, or does that yeah. after a certain period? Yeah. So, I when I got released in 2012, by the time I got to 2019, the it it become absurd. Like, so let me just give you because I think you might find it quite funny. So, when I get out of prison, um. I'm not allowed to, I had to give them, any car I got into, I had to give them the registration plate. My phone, I could only have one phone that they had a phone number to. Um, I had to live at my mum's address. I couldn't have any job that they didn't approve first and do a check. 
I wasn't allowed to live where I wanted. I, I I couldn't leave the United Kingdom. I wasn't allowed to. I wasn't allowed to go over water. I couldn't travel to Ireland. I couldn't go to Europe. I wasn't allowed to leave that country. So I basically, it's just like you're you're in a bigger open prison. Um, but obviously, I'm free. So I'm out of prison. I wasn't able to go on training camps. I I couldn't travel. I couldn't go on holidays. So when my, when when I made all these new friends, when I got out for the rowing club and stuff like, they were going to watch the Tour de France. I couldn't just do these things. I had and to, at the, and at this stage, you were presumed to be a professional athlete. Yes, yes, and it, so it made it it made it even more challenging. Like I wasn't able to race abroad. I couldn't. I could only do a couple of races a year in the United Kingdom and stuff. So kind of that made that part very, very difficult. And when yeah, it's kind of it was only in 2019 that when I started doing more stuff within the criminal justice system in Britain, like for instance, a couple of years ago. Um, I was having this is and again I'm not this isn't egotistical but like I was literally having there was a point where I was having weekly meetings at 10 Downing Street like I was having meetings with the policy advising team that was advising Theresa May to write governmental policy around um, criminal justice reform and and using sport within the criminal justice system the secretary of state for youth justice I was doing events with him I spoke at the conservative party conference so bear in mind I'm still on license I'm going to my probation officer every month to have a catch up. I'm telling her about this stuff. And she just said, this is ridiculous. Like you shouldn't be coming. Like you're, you're like my boss's 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 boss at the top. Um, and anyway, I don't know what <laughs> happened, but I think because I was doing all this work, um, one day my probation officer phoned me up and she said, I've got some amazing news for you. And I said, what? And she said, the secretary of state, um, he's, he's going to take away your life sentence conditions. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, John, she said, I've worked here for like 13 years. And she said, you are the first prisoner that's ever been released. She said, I generally don't know what you can and can't do. She went, because this has never happened before. It's very rare because a life sentence <laughs> prisoner get out and have his conditions removed. So I, 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 don't know what, I don't know what I can and can't do. And anyway, I go on my next meeting and she gives me the piece of paper and she says, like, sign this. And I and I signed it. She said, you're technically a free man. I said, well, what does this mean? And she said, well, we've looked into it. You're able to travel now. You can live where you want. You, you don't have to see me ever again. Um, but they were really supportive of me, though, along that process. Like, when when I was out of prison for a lot longer, they, they used to be very accommodating to me. And they did. They allowed me more freedoms. But the Secretary of State basically finalised it. And he, and he removed all my licence conditions. So I, I don't have to report anymore, um, which again was amazing. Like I, I didn't realise the effect. Like it was because you don't realise. Like when I'm out of prison, I just accepted the fact that I couldn't go on holiday. I wasn't able to like just do normal stuff like go and race Ironman Hamburg without asking permission two months before. And then suddenly, like this cloud's been lifted away from me, and I'm like, I can literally just go to Dover now. And just get on a ferry and go to France. I don't have to ask anyone. And it was it was such an amazing. And you don't realize subconsciously the effect it does have over you. Because suddenly I had like all this freedom. I was able just to do sort of what I want. And it was the first time like I was able to travel properly from well from when I got arrested in two thousand and five. Phenomenal. John, you're remarkable. But one thing I'd love to ask you about is, say your relationship with your mother and you grew up um, with your sister and it was probably, you know, you were more, we grew up in a house of all boys, so we weren't necessarily encouraged to be overly expressive of our emotions. And then suddenly you go to be in this very manly, macho environment and prisons and this, like, 
in those environments, could you express vulnerability or was that weakness? Like it had, you just block it up, like that's it. Yeah, yeah, that, that you, you, yeah, that's that's probably why a lot of issues, like you see when you go to a lot of young offenders institutions in particular, um, it's that they're not able to express their emotions um, because again, you are in a very male, alpha male, alpha male masculine environment where any overtly signs of weakness would be preyed on. Like you are in a very, very hyper male environment um, where it is like laws of the jungle. And it genuinely is like, I've, I've, um, I've saw, I've seen some horrific things over the years being in prison and the way human behavior and the way people sort of like will befriend someone and trick them and, and really like Machiavellian um, environment, which again, assassinates that not showing weakness to anyone. But I think when when I was in there, what kind of made me immune to a lot of that was, was again, ironically, was probably my my back track record of the people that I knew before I went to prison. So because when I went in there, people knew who I was and my family and, and, and Billy and, and all these people that I was mixing with. I, I was fortunate that when I was in there, so I just got left alone. I didn't really want to engage in that stuff that like I wasn't involved in. Because in my mind, I just always used to remind myself, this isn't my, this isn't my world. And I used to stay connected to the reality of the real world by like reading newspapers, watching the news, re- listening to the radio. And I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want that to become my reality because it's a very sad thing when you see men that have been institutionalized and they don't know nothing else bar prison. It's very, very sad to see. The, the, the one question, which I think is, so for anyone who's listening, like your story is the most incredible, like Hollywood style version of transformation of you go in with one perspective and you come out a completely like, you know, it's almost like a, it's like, it's just like a butterfly, like a caterpillar turn into butterfly. And for anyone listening who obviously doesn't, most likely doesn't have the same extreme circumstances, which you have, like, what are some, like, if you were trying to give advice to a young person of how to change their life, because like yours was obviously, you were a product of your environment to some degree that Billy was your role model and that was the world you kind of came into and if someone listening is kind of in an environment where they don't think they fit they know there's a better version of themselves what advice would you give them in terms of transforming and evolving because I, I i think you need to you need to have a very open mind to what's out there in the world um when i when i was a young person growing up and i become very one-track minded and i i focused all of my energy and the way i am as a person into that one thing now what I realised later on in my life, so for instance, teachers at school used to say to me, I used to talk in class all the time when I did go to school, um, and they used to say to me, it's not going to get you anywhere in life. Actually, it's an amazing skill that I've developed that I'm able to stand up in front of three and a half thousand people and speak with confidence, um, that I've been able I've been able to converse with people. So that is a skill. Being able to talk is a skill. It doesn't necessarily get talked to people, but I, I've seen other people that very academically clever, you put them up in front of an audience people and they just, they don't, they don't know what to do. They get shy and stuff. I would say, I, like, again, in my own personal circumstances, I had a lot of skills and talents and abilities that were applied in something very negative. If I would have had a more open mindset as a child and, and, been, and, and, and been willing to express myself in other ways, if I would have engaged with PE, would my PE teacher have seen I was good at running? If he would have, would he have encouraged it and fostered it? And then suddenly, if I realise I'm a good runner, do I become an armed robber? Very unlikely then, because then I realise I'm good at something. I'm like, well, why am I going to waste that for that? These lot of idiots, and then I'm going to be exposed to positive rumbles. I just think it's just having an open mindset um, and, and also the patience. 
like we're talking about records and stuff and we and obviously you see the end game but like throughout that it's having the discipline the dedication the self-belief like believing that you can do it believing that you can be a better person i think it's such an important thing well who are the people you surround yourself with um and trying to and i know it's hard sometimes i do generally understand it is for people like if you if you're living in a very toxic environment, but try to remove yourself from it as much as you can and go and, and, and sort of interact with positive people in the community that want you to succeed and, and sort of shine a light and other opportunities for you to take. But it's just about having that belief and that patience. And, and again, it doesn't come overnight because I've honestly, I've found far more things like the British record for 10K on a round machine. If you, if you just looked at it from a sporting perspective, I think I must have tried to break that 20 times. And I could have, and, and, and sometimes people just said, I, I did that when I was in prison, people saying, well, you might not, you just might not be good enough. And if I would have listened to them, I would have given up on the 19th time. And then, but on the 20th time is the time I ended up breaking it. So it's just about having that, just that belief that you can do it and you can achieve amazing things with your life. And we are limitless to what we do. And I, I believe every single human on this planet has a talent and ability. I was just so fortunate. I discovered mine at 26 years old, which was then the catalyst for the life that I've got today. Um, it, 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 I, I was fortunate in that regard. But if, again, if I would have been willing to express myself as a younger person and, and tried different things and had more of an open mindset, and this, this is to everyone, I could have discovered that talent and ability and, and it could have been sort of encouraged and fostered in me and I could have gone on, I could have gone to the Olympics maybe, I don't know, but it was never, no. I was never willing to phenomenal like, i just think it's remarkable and can, like one thing i'll often will often we do lots of courses kind of helping people you know improve their cardiovascular health or their skin or their digestion and often we'll say you become a product of your environment and that one of the greatest things you can do to sustain any positive lifestyle change is to create an environment that supports it and i think i remember listening to hear you say when you came out of prison you you wouldn't watch movies with any kind yeah. of armed robbery in it you really consciously tried to create an environment that fostered more positive role models. Can you speak about that in your experience? Because I think that's yeah, something like, relevant to anyone listening. Yeah, like, I, I totally, like I, I was a great believer, like again, reading The Secret and The Laws of Attraction and about the people I wanted to surround myself with. So I get released from prison. Um, I joined a rowing club in London. It was one of the best rowing clubs in the country. I got, got there because of my physiology. They didn't take novice rowers at the time, but because of the numbers I could put on the rowing machine, the head coach was like, he used to have this saying, you can't coach what God's given you. I've gone from being in prison on a Friday to on a Saturday. I'm suddenly in this rowing club around police officers, judges, solicitors, doctors, nurses, people that have rowed across the Atlantic Ocean, Olympic rowers, world champions. And then suddenly I'm around all these positive people. And I, and I kind of felt a little bit embarrassed by my past. I felt ashamed. I didn't want my past to come out. Um, but again, it was that law of attraction. I wanted to magnetise and bring these positive people and these stories. And it, and it encouraged me to stay on that track. Of, I think of, that, of... Will you ask that question again? Because something happened with the thing. Oh, sorry, a glitch there. Sorry, John. There was something on yeah. our, I don't know which end. Will you will you answer that question again? As if maybe you ask it again. Okay, sorry. It was just more about like we've seen the importance of we become a product of our environment and how uh, I think I was listening to you at Russell and when you mentioned when you came out you wouldn't watch any movies with armed robbery and I think you joined a, a, a rowing club in London with like lawyers and barristers and the very people you might have been up against and suddenly you had to try to foster this positive environment that would encourage a new version of yourself to bloom. Yeah like so like when when I got released from prison I got out on a Friday and, and on a Saturday I joined this club 
And I went there specifically to be a better athlete. Um, and they didn't at that time take novice rowers, but they, they accepted me. The head coach was Australian. He coached at the World Championships. And he used to have this mantra that you can't coach what God's given you. So when he heard about my rowing machine times, I didn't tell him where I set them. But when, when I told him how good <laughs> I was in the rowing machine, he kind of was like, you can join and I'll teach you to row because he could see me as being an asset to the club. And I joined this club and there were solicitors, police officers, judges, um, people that rode across the Atlantic. There were there, these, these, these people in society that achieved amazing things. And I was embarrassed by my past at this point. Um, I didn't want my past to come out of this club because I was worried that maybe I'd be shunned. And, and I, I started developing and cultivating these friendships. But what those friendships done um, was they blossomed, they grew, and it, and it kept me even more so on the right track. Now, I've always been a believer. Well, from when, when I went through the process, I wanted to turn my life around and do something else. And I read the book, The Secret, and, and Jeff Thompson's The Formula, that it's kind of like you have to create the environment, like what you've just said, that you have positive people around you that want you to succeed. But then it's also about the stuff that you're consuming. So I wasn't interested in crime. And like you've said, I stopped watching any movie that had any criminal element in it whatsoever. I wanted my life to be pure and as clean as what I could potentially make it become through choice and through my decisions. And, and, I, and I often say this myself in, in talks that I do, that if you've, if you've got a cancer or smile on your hand and if you leave that there, um, it's going to fester and your hand's going to get cancer and then suddenly it's terminal and you're going to die. No one's going to leave that cancer on their hand. You're going to get a, you're going to get a scalpel and you're going to get a doctor to cut it out and remove it. So I saw negativity and negative people like cancer. <laughs> I know it's very extreme, but I felt for my life to grow and move forward and develop and for me to be successful, um, I needed to be that extreme and, and really cut those toxic people. Now, I'm I'm talking about even people like people that are my own blood, like people that are my blood, I share blood with, were probably some of the most negative people when I got released from prison that sort of wanted me to fail and go back to prison and become resentful of my change. They didn't like it. And I, I remember in one case that I got a letter once um, from one of my aunties and she basically wished that like, I sort of, I, well, I kept my mouth shut when I got out of prison, but she just wished that basically I got hit off my bike, um, got died. She saw me as nothing being a piece of shit, um, a Judas. And honestly, I remember reading this letter and it put a smile on my face and it made me so happy that the decisions that I chose to make, that that lady is no longer part of my life and she's, 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 she's not part of me. And, and I'm so glad that I don't interact with people like that anymore. And again, it's just creating that environment um, where I detach from that world and that come into my world. And it reminded me why I detached from it and why my life is so much better for not having those sorts of people in my life today. So, so it really is that simple for someone listening. Like it's really about almost doing a check of your environment, like your friends, your family, your people you're spending your time with and where you're putting your energy and going, okay, which is enhancing me, which is making me a better version of myself or what I want to be and kind of almost doing a check and being categorical totally. about it to that degree. Like to totally. And like, listen, there's a difference when, when someone like, I, I, I make decisions sometimes. I've got, um, I've got amazing friends today, right? Um, one, one of them, Terry, that's been with me from the beginning since I got released from prison. I, I met him working when I was working as a volunteer at Fitness First. Terry was a member and someone said he was a sports psychologist. Straight away, his sport, I go up to him, I'm chewing his ear off. Me and him developed this relationship. When, when I used to get released from prison on a Sunday, 
he would take me out for dinner in the local, like in one of the local restaurants, because I couldn't go back to London because I was in Derby. And he, he introduced me to his family. And he's been, he, other than Aaron and Darren, he's been one of the most important people in my life. Um, he's, he's been with me today. And, and I've, had, I've had other friends that I, I use as sounding boards, for instance. And, and I do stuff sometimes and I, make, I, I ask him for advice. And I'm not always right. And he sometimes says to me, I don't think you're right. I think you should do this, you should do this. There's nothing wrong with criticism. But he's never once said to me, you're not good enough to do that. You, you can't do that. It's well beyond your means. He's always encouraged me, like Darren's always encouraged me, to believe that I can. So it's, again, it's not about having people in your life that don't necessarily always agree with you. But there's a difference between someone saying to you, I think you might do this better or do this, but still encourage you to do it or do something a little bit different to it than someone sitting in your life saying, you're just not good enough. You can't do stuff like that. Because I often think it's a reflection on that person setting limitations on what they're able to achieve that then projects that onto you. And we're all different as humans. We're all different. We all, we, again, like I said, we have got talents and abilities. And just because one person can't do something doesn't mean you can't do it. Yeah, totally. And, and when you go talking, can I just ask about your recent work kind of going into prisons to inspire people from more disadvantaged areas to try to not fall victims? Because nowadays society is, in many cases, can be really split. Those who have and those who don't have. And those who don't have often, you know, they're often in more challenging circumstances often. Sorry, we're going a little over. Um, and recently you've got into kind of going to prisons and going to disadvantaged areas and trying to inspire to use sport as a means of, you know, seeing different possibilities or to try to inspire them. Can you talk about the recent work you've been doing with that? Because it's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Even to today, sometimes like, I still have to, I still take a step back. Um, and like, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't think what I've done special. Um, and I don't like I'm just me. I'm who I am as a human. Like I, I don't I don't feel like I'm motivational. I'm inspirational. I don't. And I, I never I never quite understood at the beginning when I got out of prison, like the impact my story can have on other people. Like um, and, and it, honestly, it's such a powerful thing. Like the other day, I got a guy who messaged me on Instagram and and he was going to kill himself. And honestly, man, like I was reading this message and he was going to he, he got to the end and he was going to take his life. And he had two kids and he got he divorced. And he said he heard my story and he stopped him from killing himself, man. And I was like, I just, I even now, like, it, to know you can have that impact over someone's life is the most powerful gift that you can have. I, I honestly, and I messaged him and I said, like, mate, I honestly don't know what to say to you, but just please don't give up. Just keep fighting. Like, and he was using sport and he was running and he said it's been amazing to him and he's running 20 cat days. Like, he's doing a half marathon. But that's what's keeping him on the straight and narrow. And then when I started going into prisons and I was talking to prisoners, because they can relate to me, they listen to me, they, they can understand because I have come from where they've come from and I've managed to transcend out of that place and, and, and be successful. And I say to them, like, they have all got the ability to do that. They might not be athletes. They might just come out and just get a job and never go back to prison again. And if you do that, you've won. You've won the Olympics. Like, you've beaten the odds. You're given, like, 83%, 85% chance of spending your whole adult life sitting in prison. So, like to be a catalyst for the stuff that's gone into to the UK prisons. Like um, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, there's an organization now well, through full and reach. I'm an ambassador for a rowing club. Um, rolled out a, a, an internal rowing program throughout the UK justice system called boats, not bars, where like there's an inter-prison rowing league now in prison, UK prisons, where prisoners are able to row against each other. And back in December, 
they were competing at the British Indoor Rowing Championships and rowing against people outside on rowing machines, but they're in prison. And then the other day, like, I got tagged in this thing, um, this, like, article on Instagram, and there's, there's a version of it in Australia. And it's amazing, like, to think that all of those years ago where Darren put that time into me, that suddenly it's created this whole change and, and, and philosophy within the prison service that you can use sport as a rehabilitative tool to help turn people's lives around and, and to be part of, like, park runs and having park runs go into prisons every Saturday and local park runners from the local community get to go in and run with the, with the offenders. Um, and to be like part of that process of being able to get the justice system to see the value in it, to then allow park run access to those prisons. And, and to like the twinning project with football clubs twinning up with prisons and the local prison, like Manchester United twins up with this local prison and they deliver like coaching qualifications. But like this whole shift and to be like the example of it. Um, and again, this isn't egotistical, but a couple of years ago, when I was at the Conservative Party conference, uh, Dr. Philip Lee was the Youth Justice Secretary and he stood up and he, he gave this speech and I was going after him. And he said about I was the greatest success story to ever come out of the UK justice system. And then I got up afterwards and then I spoke. And at the end, there was one of the aides of a politician come up to me. And when I seriously cannot fathom you was that person that spent 10 years of your life in a maximum security prison. I, I literally can't connect up how you are now. And I, and I said to her, you got to understand, I was probably once one of those pieces of shit that you wanted to lock up and throw away the key. If there's been hope for me, there's hope for everyone. Like I was in, I was in the deepest, darkest hole in which they could put me. And if I've transcended out of that and done what I've done in my life, everyone is capable of change. So to be part of that movement and, to be the example of what's possible is a massive, massive honour. And, um, and, it, and it's a massive privilege that, that sort of, I will keep relentlessly pursuing it because I genuinely believe without sounding cheesy, sport can be, it can change the world. It, can, it unites people like nothing else does. It's a uniting factor that like, brings people together. It's not like politics that divides and separates into groups of you and me. And it brings people together. And, like you see like when the Olympics is on, our communities come together. Um, I was watching an amazing documentary the other day of Barry McGuigan in Northern Ireland and stuff about Read the Troubles and, and how he united the community and, and he didn't see religion. It was, he was Iron Irish. Like, we're all the same. We're just human beings on this planet. And it's just, yeah, it's just sort of, I know I'm getting carried away now, but it's just, I just, you're yeah. Amazing. She's your classic. You really no, are. I, just, I do. I, I, it's just such a powerful thing. And I just wish, I just like, especially with everything that's happening at the moment around the world, it's just like, you want to bring people together and, and like we just have to be empathetic to each other. And I just think the sport can do that for, for, for people, communities. And, and I, I think your story is phenomenal in the sense of like the sports, like when you were in your darkest, most, you know, you were in that prison inside the prison and you suddenly started doing sport, just, just exercise yourself. It's that power of sport just to transform to, to mental health, the sense of just giving hope. And, and it's almost like I read something by Edith Eager. She was the lady, the 93 year old woman that was in mm. the Holocaust. She was a Holocaust survivor and she was in Nazi prison camps. And she was saying that like the, the worst prison is the prison within your own mind and not the prison that the physical prison that you can be in. That was her, her expression on it. And I really think that like your story of you've transcended, like, as a human, like you're now such an incredible light for, it's like a movie. Like it really is. It's like watching Lord of the Rings that you've kind of turned. You've, you're like just such a force for good. That it's, I, yeah. yeah, mate. I, I like, again, and it, it's like, just, yeah, I wish, 
I wish just more people had that awareness that what what we're all potentially capable of in life, and what we can achieve and what we can do. And, and like you, you, you are the author of your own book. You just have to make decisions. And, and sometimes they're hard choices and decisions, but it is choice. Like, and it's relative. And as I said, it, it can be small steps as well, incremental steps. Like it isn't, it doesn't just happen overnight sometimes. But as long as, as long as when you go to bed, you're a tiny little bit better than what you were when you went to sleep. Like, as long as you just keep ebbing away, you will get there eventually. It might take time and it does. Like it took me a decade. And even, even now, like I still, I'm still growing as a person. I'm still developing who I am as a person and where I'm going and what I'm doing. And like what we said before, um, before we come on air, and I was talking about um, with, with me personally, and I'm, I'm not like I'm not going to be one become like a, a militant vegan, but like I I had an awareness of my own again. It was development, it was growth, it was my own hypocrisy as a person. That like when I started spending time in the mountains and I was around nature, and I've never been around nature ever in my life to the regard of what I am at the moment. Like, and I was seeing sheep and cows, and and I was seeing these these wild like all these horses in the mountains, and I was feeding them. And I looked at my own hypocrisy and I was like, I love animals. I love these. But then I'm eating it. Like, and, 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 and I stopped eating meat and I've not eaten meat since the summer. And, and I feel amazing for it. And I feel good. And, and again, I'm not being militant around it. Me personally, it's worked for me. And what are you eating now? Is it, you're a pro athlete. Are you eating kind of a lot of lentils, a lot of beans, a lot oh, of, man. you know, or just eating like 5,000 calories a day, like just out? Yeah, like I've become addicted to avocados. I've literally become addicted. Like sometimes. The other day I went out and I did a 140k ride and I got back and I'd burn 4,000 calories and I, I got the avocado and I was sitting on the sofa and I had a knife and I was cutting around and I took the pip out and I was just eating raw avocado. <laughs> so I'd become like hummus. I love hummus with carrots. I'd literally do a, I do a whole tub of hummus every day. I'm addicted to it. I just eat it. But it hasn't been that hard really. Um, I've not struggled with not having anything like I used to be more I, uh, chicken. I used to eat a lot of chicken. And obviously that it, it's just making the adjustments. Being in France now, it's a little bit harder. <laughs> it's a little bit harder. Jeez, well done, John. You're amazing. Like I just, uh, I think you're just even talking to you is such a great reminder, the power of support, the, the power that we can be better humans and just the power of self-belief. And, you know, we are what we attract and what we aim towards almost. Yeah, really. Just, and, I, and I feel like I'd love to talk to you again at some stage in the future and dig deep because like your story is so rich that like there's so much in that. But I there's so much more looking forward because we've spent most of the conversation looking backwards, whereas I think your perspective now on what needs to change and what you're focused on and all that I'd really love. I'd be fascinated. Thank well, you, like, John like, McAvoy. Well, like I said to you guys, that once um, sort of this settles down with the, with the, with the COVID um that's going on around the world once you settle down you guys have to come out to where i am now in the alps and we're going to do open water swims and we will go and hike and we're just yeah i want to, I, I want to be able to give you this the beauty of this place and that and share it with you so you have to okay, promise deal. Come out. deal deal i promise you i promise you so I promise you. I totally promise you. Great <laughs> honor. <laughs> Thanks, what John McAvoy. You're amazing. You really are. Thanks so much for your time. I'm sorry we went over, but no, I guess good. your story is remarkable. And, Thank you, guys. Uh, and but you've a book out, John, don't you? And you're on Instagram. I know you're Johnny Mac eighty-three. Yeah, is it? Yeah. Eighty-three. That's, yeah. That tells uh, you my you, age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I spotted that. Sarah said that earlier. And then in terms of your book, you wrote a book recently. What's it called? Uh, it's called uh, Redemption. From Iron Bars to Iron Man. Wow. Amazing. Amazing.
Well, thank you, John. Thanks so thank much for you your guys. time. And yeah, uh, we'll stay in touch. And I look forward yeah. to visiting you in, in France. Definitely, mate. Definitely. Take yeah. care, guys. Cheers, John. This is Shawnee Thanks. and Sarah. Sarah, do you want to say hi? This is this is John. Oh, you can't see them there. Oh, you can see his hands. <laughs> Thanks a million, John. You really are no, amazing. That's good, mate. I, I'll, post, I really... will you text, I'll message you now just saying, will you send me on your address? Because I'll post you on some books. Yes, uh, I'll, do, I'll do that bits. now for you, man. Yeah. Mate, thank hey, wait, you. Honestly, it's and been I, so I, lovely talking to you guys. It's been so lovely. You're amazing. Uh, likewise, likewise. And we will come visit. We'll be in touch about, once we have your address now, when the world opens, yeah. we will. We will honour our commitment. Mate, the Irish community up here will absolutely love it. Like when you put the post up earlier, and you was doing the podcast with me, there was people up here were like, "Oh my god, are you talking to it like they love you up here?" So they they would be so excited to have you. Because, oh, but, you but honestly, guys, I, I promise you, I I I promise you this now: you will never have gone to a more beautiful place than this place in the start. It is just mind-boggling. You, you have to promise me you'll come. Right. Okay. Yeah, promise, I have, promise. I have. Yeah. Promise. I, will. I promise. Uh, I promise. I promise. Right, we we'll spend time together. We'll hang out. Thanks, yeah. John. You're amazing. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Cheers, John. Thank you. Thank Cheers, you. Bye bye. Thanks, million, for listening to this podcast. We're really delighted. Hope you enjoyed John as much as we did. Thanks for subscribing. Let us know what you think on social. We genuinely love to just hit us up. Send us a message. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll have another podcast out next Wednesday. And in the meantime, send him lots of love. Wishing you a good week ahead. Cheers. Cheers.